Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Um, Would you guys bow your heads with me once more as we dive into God's word? Lord, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in your word. Um, We know that our intellect and our knowledge and our minds um, are zealous to learn about all of life. It's how you've created us as humans. And yet, as we sit under your word, we need more um, than just mere intellect. We need your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear and hearts to apply. And so we ask that that happens in our midst today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we are back in the book of Proverbs this week, and we're in a portion of the book of Proverbs where Solomon, who has done all of the writing up to this point in Proverbs, has been discussing wisdom in the context of community. And godly wisdom in Proverbs we've seen is not just street smarts or savvy. Godly wisdom is a worldview that places everything under one presupposition, and that presupposition is that God's ways are always trustworthy. That we can always trust in God in a world that calls us to trust ourselves or our circumstances. Last time we were together, uh, three weeks ago in the book of Proverbs, Solomon was warning us about our mouths and how our mouths can either build a community or destroy a community. And today he focuses not on our words, but on our wallets. In the same way our words reveal the whole of our hope, so too does our view of money reveal the whole of our hope. And what Proverbs has done up to this point is it's systematically beginning to establish a Christian, a biblical, a God-centered worldview on just about everything in our lives. And it's important for our text today to remember what we saw in Proverbs chapter 6 when Solomon was talking about our work and he was giving us a biblical worldview of our work. We work not just to make money, though that seems like the reason why we work, We work because just as the ant was created to work by God, we were created to work by God. Work was present in the garden before sin. Work will be present in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus has finally dealt with sin. And work is part of our life now. And so we work to provide for our families. We work to provide for our community. But we also work to glorify God with the gifts he's given us so that his world can be seen and people can see the wonder of what it is when people are working for the glory of God. And this is true whether you're flipping burgers or you're flipping homes, and this is really important when it comes to talking about a biblical view of money. Because a biblical view of work shows that money is not the reason, the exclusive reason while we work, which tells us that money is not king in our lives. God is after so much more in your life than mere money. And just how Solomon has helped us see how our work is to glorify God, now he wants us to see how our money or our lack of money or whatever is in your checkbook is also meant to glorify God. And this is really central to what Solomon is going to do with us today. Our passage today, as, which was just read, verses 16 through 28 of Proverbs 11, it's kind of split into two sections, each of which talk about riches, reward, generosity. But in the middle, there's this proverb in the middle, this almost parable, smack dab in the middle in verse 22, that kind of shakes us up to the reality of this text. And this is what it says, Proverbs 11, verse 22. 
Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. What's Solomon's point here? Well, the context of where this falls helps us understand what this is. He's not just talking about beautification at this point. It's in the context of how we view our money. And a gold ring back then is the same thing a gold ring is now. People want it because it's beautiful. It adds value, beauty, dignity to whoever owns it. But without discretion, which is a word we've seen come up a number of times in Proverbs, without discretion, that is without the ability to discern what is wrong and what is right, what is true and what is false, any accoutrements of wealth you have in this world are nothing more than a gold ring in the snout of a pig. Meaning that whatever you think gives you wealth or whatever your idol behind wealth is, whether it's comfort or status or identity or joy, you can get all of those things, you could robe yourself in those in spades, and yet, if you don't discern what God's wisdom says about our riches, you are the fool who feeds on garbage, rolls in the mud, stinks up to high heaven, and yet you have a false sense of beauty because of that small snot-covered ring hanging below your nose. And this is why we love Proverbs. Because this illustration is part silly and part offensive, and yet we know exactly what Solomon is trying to do. He wants us to be the one who has discretion. We see we don't want to be like this. We want to be one who sees what God sees about value and riches and trusts his understanding instead of our own understanding. And that's what we're going to look at today. And to help us have a biblical view on wealth, riches, and generosity, we're going to see two things. First, in verses 16 through 21, we're going to see the wealth of the righteous, how God views wealth and righteousness. And then secondly, we're going to see in verses 22 through 28, principles for, gos- for godly gospel, that's the G word I used, principle for gospel generosity. As before those, we'll see in that part. But let's start by looking at our first point today, the wealth of the righteous. So why don't you read with me uh, verses 16 through 21. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of a crooked heart or an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. So there's a couple things that we want to clue in on of what Solomon is trying to do in this text and how he's trying to do it. The first is that Solomon shows us exactly how to get rich quick. If that's what you've been hoping for, if that's your vision of the American dream, here it is. Be violent and wicked. They get it. They're getting their wealth. They're getting their riches. In fact, Solomon in his autobiography, the book of Ecclesiastes, he shares this too. This was his observation. Ecclesiastes 7.15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life by evil doing. Do you want to prosper? Do you want to prolong your life? 
Do you want to get riches and wages? If that is your life goal, here is your solution. Be wicked and violent. Pursue wickedness and you'll find it. If you're willing to sin to get it, chances are you'll get it. Isn't that the basis of every true crime documentary we watch? It's not that they don't get it, it's that they can't keep it. And that's the bigger problem. If you're willing to take violently from others, you'll find it. If you find it, you can find it if you're willing to lie and cheat for it. It's accessible. It's not hard. But there's this second contrast in this text. And we see these contrasts where it's a violent and cruel man who gets riches. And it's contrasted with what? With a woman who gives grace and gets honor. A kind man who benefits himself and benefits others. The wicked earn a deceptive wage, but there's a contrast. The righteous sows seeds, hoping for a sure reward. I don't know where all of you guys are at with Jesus here online. I'm guessing that when we see these two sides of the scale, you don't have to have been raised in a Christian home to realize that one is probably better than the other. That if we were to tell people what it is we're pursuing, we would probably shy away from words like cruel, violent, and wicked, and instead say that we at least want to be seen as generous, gracious, and righteous. But why is it then, if that seems to be this common morality that we all want, that we live in a world where there are deceitful schemes for riches all over the place? Two, three weeks ago, I think I made a joke about someone calling four weeks ago about your car's extended warranty. They heard me. I get calls like every other day now about that. And my student loans. I'm like, I don't have student loans. Who are you? One of you is in trouble with your student loans and you should call them. <laughs> These schemes are everywhere. Why is it our world wants that? Well, actually, if we zoom out and we look at what's going on in this text, the unfortunate thing we see in this text is that it doesn't pay to be righteous, at least by worldly standards. Sure, the gracious woman gets honor. Try paying your rent with your honor. Sure, the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. But if you're listening, there's this contrast of kind of careers. One is a farming agricultural illustration. They are tilling, they are sowing, they are waiting. What are the wicked doing? They're getting their paycheck on time. It's their money and they want it now. And even if what they sow makes it through the hard season, we're not guaranteed what the reward is. What if it's cauliflower? How does that compare to the riches? Is it better? Is it worth it? What do we know? It's just a reward. Are they going to be bamboozled by the end of this? There is a social Ill, uh, experiment done by researchers at the University of North Carolina and Harvard, and they wanted to study the effects of kind of the pay-it-forward movements that you see, like when someone buys your coffee in the Starbucks line, or that dark liquid they tell you is coffee in the Starbucks line. And what they did is they went to a busy subway station in Boston, and they would find random individuals, and they would give them six free dollars. And they would say, you have the opportunity with this six dollars to split it however you want, and you get to put what you want in an envelope, and you give back to us what you want us to pay forward to another individual. As you could split it up, and you could keep five and give one, or give all six and keep none, or keep three and give three. And what would happen is they would give whatever is left, whatever you put in that pay-it-forward envelope, they'd give that to the other individual, 
they would open it, see how much money was there, the experiment would be explained to them, and then they would be given six more free dollars that they could then choose to divvy up however they wanted. And so what happened was they realized that if someone got $3 in their envelope and the social study was explained to them, they would forward on average $3. They would keep three and they would give three away. That sounds nice, but that's just equality. That's not generosity. It was free money you got anyway. Generos or, uh, equality was being forward, but it wasn't necessarily generous. However, what was interesting of the individuals who received less than an equal portion in their envelope, meaning $2 or less, on average, they forwarded only $1.32 to the people who followed them. And so what was seen in something which is generally seen as pay it forward, this wonderful portrait of humanity, that actually we are more likely to pay forward our greed than we are our generosity. People just like you and I, average individuals, actually are so crippled by the fear of not having this money that is currently in our hands that we begin to slowly consider our own interests to the detriment of those who are around us. And isn't this easy to do? We read this text and we think, I'm not violent and I'm not deceitful. I'm not wicked. But are there times where through anger or manipulation or intimidation, you try to talk your roommates into paying a little bit more of the cable bill that month? Or I didn't use this much electricity. I didn't eat that much pizza at our party. Are there times where, though you don't think yourself to be dishonest, you sell things on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist knowing they're on the verge of breaking and you're not about to let anyone know? Or you check out at the grocery store and you know full well that the new cashier lady totally undercharged you and you're fine just walking out because it benefits you. I experienced a profound example of how easy this is and how we feel in our hearts when our family gathered at Christmas to do a white elephant gift exchange. And you're, you, we set the $10 to $20 kind of white elephant gift thing. And at the end, there's this portion of time where you set a timer. And as long as the timer's going, you're able to stop and steal people's gifts. I don't know if that's what your family thinks is fun, but apparently mine does. And, uh, and so it was going well. We were all jovial and happy. And then someone opened a gift. And in the middle of the gift was a $100 bill. This is a social experiment you guys wanted to see. Because what then happened was this charitable family began rolling the dice a little more aggressively, snatching presents a little more ambitiously, and behind all of our grinning smiles was the silent confession, I'm going to destroy you and take this money from you. <laughs> Christmas was ruined. <laughs> Solomon knows how easy it is for our hearts to want and to justify. So it's not hurting anyone. Just a little here, a little there, and no one's worse off for it. But I love what Solomon does here. Read again verses 16 through 21. A gracious woman gets honor, and violent men get riches. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, 
but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. So I don't know if you guys see it there, but Solomon almost has this cascade of logic where you can tell he's preaching to you with that $6 in your hand. He is ahead of how we rationalize a view of money which is me-centric and idolatrous. It says, well, if I, you know, honest, honor's nice, but if I'm honest, riches are a little bit better. So if I could take just by a little bit of manipulation over here, just a little bit more, I'm okay. But Solomon says, this cruelty hurts yourself. This isn't to your benefit. But then we look with our $5 and we say, but with money like this, I can afford therapy. I can get through this. But says Solomon, those wages are deceptive wages. And he said, but it was only a little, a little dishonest. No one really got hurt. And Solomon picks up in verse 19 and following, he says, no, 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 no. It's deceptive to you. Those riches are promising something to you that is a lie. You're looking to those things to provide you something that wealth cannot provide. They cannot deliver you from death. They cannot win you favor with God. Those who pursue evil will die. Remember what we've seen already in the book of Proverbs. Let's get back to the beginning of this chapter, Proverbs 11, verse 7. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. You turn back a page to Proverbs 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. And what the researchers found in this experiment was actually the hypothesis they set out to prove. And that was that negative stimuli controls actions more than positive stimuli. Things driven by fear or by need are stronger than things driven by joy or generosity. And you see, the greatest and most powerful negative stimuli in your life is the fear you feel in your very core. A fear of not being satisfied. A fear of being forgotten. A fear of discomfort. A fear, ultimately, of your own death. And all of these things are the results of the lingering effect sin has when it separates us from God and earns us a just condemnation in our death. And the only way we will be able to set aside violence for the sake of grace and wickedness for the sake of righteousness and a negative stimuli for the sake of a positive one is to realize that riches deceitfully promise relief in all of those areas, but those who stand in the righteousness of Jesus have already been delivered from all of it. Those who stand in righteousness will live. And now remember, when we talk about righteousness in the book of Proverbs, we need to be careful. Righteousness does not equal works-based righteousness. There is an aspect where those who are righteous are those who obey and follow Jesus. But righteousness in Proverbs is not first something you earn. Righteousness in Proverbs is first something that Lady Wisdom, this stand-in for God, gives. Those who love me, I love, and I give them righteousness. Righteousness is something that each and every one of us can get only by God's grace when we come to the God who is righteous. When can we put aside our sinful anxiety and our deceitful schemes and violent hands when it comes to our view of money? Only when we realize that walking in gracious, kind, and righteous obedience to God affords us God's very delight. 
for us this side of the law of God, we see that righteousness is attained by seeing Jesus as the provision for our sins, the one who removes the condemnation from our head and brings us into the very delight of the God who we once stole worship from. And I love what Solomon does here, and you see that in verse 21 where he says, be assured. What is Solomon doing? He's slipping out of wise man mode and he's slipping into counselor mode. He knows, he knows that you are going to justify pursuit of wealth for any myriad of reasons. And he says, be assured, those who do evil will not escape their punishment. The Lord loathes those who seek out crooked ways. They are an abomination to his own heart. But the Lord delights in those who trust in him. The wicked cannot avoid all they're trying to avoid no matter how much they spend. They will be punished for their sin, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. You see, we experience the delight of God himself by being found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the righteous offspring who came, who fully obeyed God's laws. Not David, not Solomon, not Moses, not Abraham. Jesus was the full perfection of God himself in the flesh. And look at what Paul says of this in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through the first part of 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When we stand in Christ's righteousness, we know we have a sure reward. And what is that reward? Standing in Jesus Christ with the full pleasure of God, knowing that our eternal problem has been solved in full. That Je- what Paul will say later on in Romans, that there is now no one who can condemn, for Christ has justified Your needs for belonging, for security, for joy, and for love have been met in the God-man Jesus Christ who loved himself for you and cherished not the wealth of heaven but came to serve his brothers and sisters. We can only be comfortable laying down the world's longing for riches when we realize that even if we die by the poorest standards in this world, we die with the riches of heaven itself. And for all eternity, we glory in what we have been given in the gospel. Wealth for the righteous person is the wealth given to us in Jesus Christ. And if we miss that, which is so hard because we can't see it, there's no bank of righteousness you can go to. There's no flat screen TV that was bought out of your checkbook of righteousness. But if we understand that, everything changes And this passage is really unique because in this first part of the passage, we see that those who trust Jesus are not those who gain riches by worldly standards. There's actually no one who gains riches in that first section who is righteous. But they were also those who received the blessing and joy of God's delight. They were ones who began to see, Proverbs 11, 22, 
the pig concealed behind the gold. We see that God offers us something better in the gospel. God clothes us in the imperishable riches of redemption and promises to deliver us from what ultimately condemns, which is our own sin. If your view of money drifts, there's a dangerous problem because the truth is you will always need more money. But when you see Christ clearly, what he has done on the cross to save those who come to him by faith, you will realize that the provision of righteousness in Jesus is so profound that you will never need more of it. Isn't that astounding? You will need more food, you will need more water, you will need more strength, you will need more football, you will never need more salvation than what is given to you in Jesus Christ. He has met your need abundantly. Yet where this passage shows that the righteous didn't necessarily gain wealth, what actually follows shows what righteous do when by God's grace they do gain wealth. But it's only when we understand this first paradigm that anything else makes sense. Read with me Proverbs 22 through 28. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. The desire of the righteous ends only in good. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, it grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but, it is a, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. So here's our second point this morning. This is where we're going to see four principles of gospel generosity. And we'll look at all four of these, but again, we can't move on. This is not, here's the practical application, and here's something you talk about in church. If we miss this gospel aspect, we can never be generous like the Bible calls us to be generous. And look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 19. Knowing that you, he's speaking to the church, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Because we have been ransomed, our greatest problem of sin has been solved, not by silver and gold, by the blood of Jesus. It means that whatever silver and gold we have, whatever cash or credit is available to our disposal, we don't have to use that to buy things that Jesus has already purchased for us. Jesus has given us those things for free. Everything else becomes open-handed to be used for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbors, and for our own joy. And this is what we see in our first principle today, that gospel generosity liberates our conscience. Gospel generosity liberates our conscience. Now, I want to define what I mean when I say gospel generosity. First, I really mean that even though we like to in the Christian world just append gospel as an adjective to any word, I really mean it. That if we don't understand that wonderful purchase that Peter's talking about, the something better than silver and gold we have in Jesus Christ, we can do none of this. But Jesus Christ dying, spilling his blood to save us from sin, frees our finances from having to buy our own soul's salvation or our own soul's satisfaction. And if Jesus brings us back into the delight of God, the pleasure of God, the joy of God, the smile of God, then we hold our finances loosely because we know our finances cannot purchase those things. 
But secondly, gospel generosity is not foolishness. We've seen twice now, once actually in Proverbs eleven fifteen, right before this passage, the warning of striking a hand in pledge when that would be foolish or unwise. Solomon warns us against lending money to foolish people or making a rash vow for the sake of generosity that can't actually be met. God knows that if we're unwise and give without considering gospel wisdom, we might hurt the people to whom we give the money to, or we might hurt others in our family who have a different need for that money to meet their basic provision. And so gospel generosity actually assumes a budget to help wisely steward what God is giving to you, that you know what you have and you know what you can give. Just as a good disciple is encouraged to count the cost of discipleship, a good disciple considers how his finances can be used to glorify God. It's hard to be generous, which is a lot of what this passage talks about, when you don't have a budget, when you don't know what you have to be generous with. And we want to be a church where we're not afraid to help each other manage their finances in a way that serves them, blesses God's global church, and cares for their local community. We actually want to be people who are nosy about where our fellow members are spending their money because we want them to have the joy that the gospel talks about. And here's the wonderful beauty of all of this is when we see what Christ has done is what gives us the pleasure of God, we can actually open up our budget to our our community group members and our fellow members without experiencing shame based off what we make because we realize that our riches don't validate us. They speak nothing of our identity because the blood of Christ speaks of our identity. And so it is with joy and actually with a desire to be helped that we can invite others in to make sure that we are managing things in a wise way. And this conversation that you'll have in the realms of discipleship is really important in light of our first principle because through wisdom and through the help of the Holy Spirit, generosity can actually liberate your conscience in regards to money. In other words, it can liberate that part of you which wrestles with what is right and what is wrong. Look with me at Proverbs eleven twenty four. One freely gives, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Now, perhaps you, like me, when I first read this passage, what stands out is the, pro- the, the potential of like, giving and just growing richer. That stands out to us, doesn't it? And we'll talk about that more in verse 25. But the more time I spent in this text, I was drawn to focus on the second part of this verse, which talks of the one who withholds what he should give and suffers only want. How many of you have been pricked by generosity and a desire to give to or towards something, but you've worried about the repercussions of that? You've wondered what that would mean for your conscience, for your pocketbook, for whatever it is. I know for me, uh, I am like smog when it comes to my finances, where I don't really have this desire for really, really nice things, but I do like to sit on a pile of my gold and know that if something were to happen, I could summon it to save me. Which means it's a frequent thing in my heart where I encounter times where I know I should give and my conscience is burdened by my potential fear in giving. And I wrestle with it. I fear the result of my generosity. But look at what Proverbs says in Proverbs 3.28 earlier. Solomon said this. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. 
when we understand that Jesus and Jesus alone is our satisfaction, our security, and when we've done the work of actually knowing what money we have and being wise to glorify God with it and to actually provide our basic levels of provision with it, we are free to give and to trust Jesus with the rest. If we know what we have and we trust God with our joy, we can actually obey calls to generosity and grow all the richer by finding out what we don't ultimately need. Let me give you an example of this. When we started um, like an entire world ago in 2018 when we set out on our building fund and we, we filled out those pledge cards, I remember Sarah and I sat on our back porch one summer afternoon and we started to say, okay, what's a reasonable pledge we can give to the church? And so what I would do is I would uh, look at our budget and I'd throw out a number and Sarah would say, oh, that's good. And then she'd say, can I look at the budget? And then she looks at the budget and she's like, we don't need this, we don't need this, and we don't need this. Try this number. And that's the joy of doing finances in the context of discipleship. Sarah was helping me follow Jesus and helping us serve the church. And at each time where it got a little more awkward for me and my Sunday ticket package got a little closer to being nixed from the budget, I was forced with these decisions. But you know what? We've lived with this budget for a year and a half now. And as I was writing this sermon, I tried to think about what we cut and I can't think about it. I don't know what it was. We didn't need it. And so as we have looked and considered and given, we have grown richer, not because we've made any more money, but because we realize in Jesus what we don't actually need. And we have more to bless God's kingdom with. What a joy it is to come to this realization that the gospel gives us the ability to give when we feel we need to give. To liberate our consciences to trust Jesus with acts of generosity in the same way God has been generous to us by supporting global missions, the local church, and your own community whenever the Holy Spirit so incites that desire in you. This then leads to our second principle, and that is that gospel generosity blesses the most people. Look with me at verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. What I love about this particular passage is it just describes generosity as bringing a blessing. This is a great challenge and a great encouragement. If you're in a season where money is tight, and many of us are, you can still be a generous blessing by providing to your community a blessing in a different way with your skills, with your labor, with your time. Our generosity is meant to bless people. And I'm sure you have been a recipient of that kind of generosity at some point of your in your life. And what does it feel like when you receive that? Doesn't that give you a glimpse into the unmerited favor that God gives us in Jesus Christ? By giving to us when we had a need, but we had no ability to deserve it, and nothing in us that would make God move towards us, but he decided to do it because he loves us and he is a generous God. As a church, I think we all feel this right now. We'll hear a little bit more of this in our uh, members meeting later. But as we've been working on this building campaign, we've received donations from people in at least a dozen states. Our building has received gifts and favors from vendors in town who have probably never even stepped foot inside of a church before. And when we see what God has done, we get to stand in awe at the blessing of God in the lives of other people because when they are generous with us, regardless of what they think about God, we get to say, isn't this like how God is generous towards us? But more than our generosity being a blessing to others, here it's specifically talking about 
Our generosity enriches us. Look at how Paul puts this at length in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. Listen to the emotions he describes here. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So there's that freedom of conscience in verse 24. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all a grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, if we're doing a Bible study right now, we've circled all a lot, and that's really important. At all times that you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he, that is Jesus, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Generosity blesses the giver. Now, this is where we need to wrestle with a movement that has made preaching Proverbs really difficult. And that is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is this false idea that if you love God and are obeying God, God has an obligation to reward you with physical riches and physical health. If you are not physically rich and physically healthy, then you have some sin in your life, you need to confess it, and God will then restore to you your wealth and your health. And what makes this particularly dangerous is that it's partially true. We see this a lot in the book of Proverbs. If you're a person who is constantly blessing God's kingdom with support to his church, his people, and his mission, God might choose in his providence to continually bless you so that you can continually bless others. And yet, this is where we need to look at the tension of scripture. The prosperity which is promised in the gospel is not always physical prosperity. Remember what we saw in verses 16 through 21? Those righteous people didn't receive a dime. And yet they got the delight of God. They were satisfied immensely in the reward of righteousness. The prosperity gospel isn't wrong when it says that God wants to enrich his people. This very proverb says that exact thing. God will enrich, water, and care for those who bless others. The prosperity gospel is wrong when it tries to tell God what his enrichment should look like. When it tries to say, this is how you will bless me. Christ is our blessing in scripture. And just as Paul says that your reward might be in, in 2 Corinthians 9, your reward, that blessing, that enrichment might be that you are enriched in every way for every good work. Meaning your reward is becoming more Christ-like, being more holy, not a new car, but a new act of charity. Not another gold ring in the snout of a pig, but another meaningful conversation in discipleship 
where you help someone else follow Jesus. As we follow Jesus' call to love others, even with our finances, we draw nearer and nearer to Jesus through obedience. And that is our greatest joy. That is our greatest treasure. And so the question I ask myself in a text like this that I encourage you to ask is do you actually trust that being generous to those around you is a way where God might increase your intimacy with him and increase your joy in life? Because if it is, what would that change? With our time, with our skills, and with our money. Our third principle today is actually distinct because where all the other principles in this portion kind of deal with raw generosity, giving, our third principle actually deals with business and earning. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 26. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. And here we see our third principle, that gospel generosity shapes our business practices. This is true whether you're a boss, a manager, or an employee. This is highlighted all the more with stories I saw in Texas during the big ice storm that came. The ice storm disrupted supply lines, left grocery stores without the promise of incoming food. And what some businesses did is they jacked up the prices of essentials, knowing that people were desperate for them. But if a Christian understands that his work is not only about making money, but about providing for the good of his family and for the good of his community, And if a Christian understands that money doesn't ultimately satisfy, then a Christian businessman or woman understands that their business is meant to care for their community and not to harm it. We see in Scripture in the New Testament that a laborer deserves his wages, and we're not saying otherwise. That is just as much God's truth as generosity is. And yet, we also see when it comes to biblical business business ethics, there is a difference between seeing your customer, your client, or your patient as a community member and seeing them as just a commodity to be consumed. For whatever reason, this proverb assumes somebody who has grain, and whether through famine or people not meeting his price or through stinginess, he's refusing to sell to those in need. In Missoula, it's no secret that we have a bit of a housing crisis on our hands. What would it look like for Christian property managers, landlords, contractors, painters, maintenance workers to be part of the solution instead of seeking to only profit off the problem? I know one Christian couple who bought a house years and years ago, back when things didn't cost you know, $2 million for a two-bedroom house, and they charge rent to people who live there. And the rent they charge is enough to cover what is owed on the building and to, co- to care for their investment. But it's hundreds of dollars below market value. And they do this so that whomever is renting from them can set aside what the actual market rent is and put it in a storage fund to build up a down payment for a house. What does it look like in your place of employment to be entrepreneurial for the sake of generosity? Of thinking what it looks like to provide for your family, to make a profit as is righteous to the Lord, but also to care for those in your community. To see that God cares about our heart in our business as much as he cares about our success in our business. And our last principle is a reminder of why any of this is possible. This is that gospel generosity reveals a flourishing trust. Look at verses 27 and 28. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, 
but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. It's easy to read this text and to say, I want this. I want this enrichment. I want this increase of wealth. I want this honor. I want this favor. We always gain by following Jesus. Gain is always on the table for the Christian. And yet we need to have an understanding of what that gain is. If we follow Jesus because we think he will help us financially, then finances are our God and Jesus is not. Trusting in Jesus is not trusting in money. Trusting in Jesus looks like trusting in righteousness, in trusting that obedience, even when costly, is of greatest importance. It means regardless of what the circumstances are on the outside, we really believe that honoring and obeying Jesus is what's best for us, bar none, without exception. And we trust God to provide more than we trust our savings account to provide. Look at how Solomon describes this. It's an astounding passage. Ecclesiastes 5, 19 through 20. Solomon says this, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Isn't that an astounding statement? That here you have one to whom God has given wealth and riches and one to whom God has cast a lot that is toil, meaning he's not having a brimming savings account, but at the heart of it, God is the one who gives power to enjoy anything. And at the end of the day, whether God, who is the giver of wealth and the giver of not wealth, if it is God who gives it as a gift, then man will not be, uh, what, what does it say? I should look before I just quote it wrong. He says, man will not want to remember the days of his life. Why? Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Whether you have lack or whether you have much, the Christian gets to the grave and they do not reflect on what was spent or not spent. Instead, they are occupied with the joy of Christ for them that God has given them the ability to be satisfied in life because of his immense mercy to us in the gospel. Oh, that we would be a church whose time and hands are occupied by such a giver with joy. That it shapes the way we give, the way we serve, the way we love, and the way we worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray um, that as we talk about money, even talk about generosity, our heart gets incited to be generous or to be wealthy for reasons that are sometimes selfish reasons. So Lord, help us to understand that all of that, are, that, that money is not evil, but money is the root of what is evil. It preys on our sinful hearts, but Lord, you wash our hearts clean. That Lord, we might use all of our life to glorify you and to love others. Lord, we pray that as we learn to hold our riches loosely, we learn to hold the treasure of the gospel firmly. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.